Romans chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as in me, as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. I must be honest and say that last week's study, uh, as we looked at the verses that we, have, that we are basically looking at again tonight, I find I, I feel that it was a very important ministry for us as Christians. It showed us that there are many obstacles that lay in the path of what we would call progress uh, in the things of God or in the faith or in the will of God. And I suppose that every one of us have experienced certain obstacles uh, in what we would like to achieve for God and like we would want to become in God. You know, and uh, we have experienced the things that would stop us and perhaps even frustrate us and discourage us sometimes from being what we would like to be as far as God is concerned. You know, uh, we saw last week that some are demonic. There, are, there is an enemy uh, of our souls, someone who is uh, arrayed against the things of God, not just us personally, but of course against Christ, uh, against God, against uh, the Christian faith. There is an enemy we have. Satan uh, is his name. He brings obstacles to us in many guises and in many forms. But he also saw last week that we are not to think that Satan uh, is getting his way every time we fail to achieve something. It's not Satan who is always the one who is, who is to blame for the obstacles uh, that are in our way. Of course we can blame ourselves sometimes. There are things that we don't even need Satan to, to uh, miss out on things. But there are also things that are more pressing. We saw that last week that Paul was wanting to come to Rome, but he had other things to achieve first. You know, and God was in control of the other things that he was, that he was doing. And as I said last week, I come to that verse, now that I finished in this place, I am able to come to you next. But then, of course, I've got to go to Jerusalem first and sort out that. And then on my way to Spain, I'll come and see you. And we can see that Paul was in no way frustrated. He was in no way sort of tensed up or stressed out, as we say. But he was at peace in the will of God. So then, then, you know, there is other things, more pressing things that get in the way. And sometimes it's the Lord himself. We saw that it was the Holy Spirit who stopped them going to some places and sort of guided their way into other places. So we are not to be discouraged just because things don't go our way. Not to be discouraged or sort of think that we are failures because we haven't achieved you know, especially when we think about this next couple of weeks, we will be looking forward to 2016 and we will have this great list of things that we want to achieve through that year. And then we'll be, we're at the end of 2015 and we've ticked off a couple, but we've crossed off a few things that we looked at at the beginning of the year and think, oh, we failed to do this and we failed to do that. But there are many reasons why we don't succeed in all the things that we set out to do. You know, if you remember, 
I likened it last week to uh, Linford Christie listening for the starting pistol to go off in his year until it was off then you shouldn't go off you know we saw that uh, one year in the Olympics he went off with the gun and won the, the gold the next year he went off before the gun and went home so there is a starting pistol and we saw that that was the peace of God let the peace of God be the arbiter let the peace of God be the referee let the peace of God be the judge you know and the peace of God is the final judge and not the necessity of the circumstance you know there are so many circumstances we could be running about like headless chickens to try and sort everything out but it's not necessity that is the judge it is the peace of God the peace of God that it reigns within our hearts that defines the will of God in our lives and so we can say that opportunity whether that door opens or whether that door stays shut you know that's the there are so many practical things concerning the the will of God and I felt last week that um, when I came I thought oh is this going to say anything to anyone but as I was preaching I felt that it was the, the right thing to preach about. You know, I felt I, I, I had the peace of God. So I had the, I was in the will of God. You know, and with that tonight, uh, we move on to verse 13. And observe, observe something else that really defines our call to do God's will. I'm going to read it to you. Verse 13, or verse 14, sorry. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the unwise. And then we can see uh, what I would call a, a great principle in defining the will of God. You know, and we can discover this principle from this verse by looking at just one word one word now unfortunately for me now this might be different for you right? you might be on top of uh, this but when I read the new King James Version and of course I am used to the King James Version uh, from my youth this verse has always confused me right up until now the verse has always made no sense to me at all because the new King James Version uses the word Debtor, debtor. The old King James Version also used the word debtor. Now listen to it, what it says. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. You know what, I've always thought, why is Paul a debtor to these people? What have they given him? Or what have they done for him that have caused him to become a debtor you know what my understanding of being a debtor is that when someone gives you something or does something for you and you can't repay them that means that you're a debtor to them you know there's a story this week in the newspaper of a man who would have jumped off Waterloo Bridge eight years ago but for another man who was passing walked over to him when he was just about to go 
and offered him a cup of coffee. And eight years later, this week, they met for the first time. Since that incident. You know, the, the man who offered the cup of coffee always wondered whether the man actually jumped off or not. He didn't know whether he had stopped him for just a moment and then as soon as he turned his back he would have got back up and jumped off or not. He never knew anything. Hadn't heard nothing at all. But the man changed his life completely because he was offered a cup of coffee while he was on the brink of suicide. And he wanted to thank the person that saved his life. And he put a, um, an advert out on the television for the man who offered him a cup of coffee on Waterloo Bridge eight years ago and they met for the first time since then you know what this man said I am I owe him so much I'm a debtor to him if it wasn't for him I'd be dead I owe him and I can't repay him that's what I would think was a debtor now what have these people done for Paul that's what I couldn't get my head around to be in such debt to them now thankfully the NIV have sorted me out as I've studied this word and brought me an understanding of what it's all about then they use a totally different word they use the word an obligation listen to what the NIV says I am obligated obligated both to the Greeks and to the non-Greeks to the wise and the foolish that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel uh, to you who are in Rome also. You want know, as soon as I read that, I am obligated, I began to understand what this verse actually means. An obligation. An obligation had been placed upon him. But by who? Who is it that brings this obligation upon Paul? Where does this obligation originate from now you know as well as I do that there are things that are done today they come from the recognition of a need you know this week again this week we've been encouraged to adopt a polar bear Do if we adopted everything that we've been encouraged to adopt our house would be full our shed would be full, our garden would be full, but we've been uh, encouraged to adopt a polar bear why? well because the ice cap allegedly is receding and before long these poor uh, the habitat of these poor creatures will be gone forever now I don't know if they expect us to put some ice grotto in our garden and uh, invite one of these huge animals to come and live with us and provide a home for him when this disaster scenario of the ice cap disappearing unfolds I do not know I don't know what the, uh, the point of adopting a polar bear is otherwise than doing that. But we have an obligation, so the television told us, for or to the polar bears. Now I'm going to be honest with you. I'm standing here in the pulpit saying the truth. I don't feel it myself. I don't feel obligated to the polar bears. You know, it doesn't matter to me if I never see one. I probably never will. So I've got no obligation to the polar bears. But I'm sure that there are thousands of mugs, and I mean benefactors, who will uh, give their money 
to somebody they never meet because of a need they didn't know existed until the obligation was placed upon them. That's how obligations come. They come because of a need. Now whether that need is the polar bear or the person who's in charge of the fund, I don't know. I'm not going to say anything. But Paul, but the obligation that Paul talks about isn't engendered by the need. You know, we saw that last week um, when we talked about this last week. It's the will of God that has brought the obligation. It's the will of God that brings the obligation. You know, as we study the life of Paul, I would say that this obligation weighed heavily upon him. He felt it so keenly and his desire to fulfill such an obligation is seen so evidently in this tireless way that he drove himself to preach the gospel wherever he went. And we can see it from the missionary journeys that are outlined for us in the book of Acts. And we can see in this passage of scripture or in this epistle where he says, I've longed to come to you. I've tried my hardest. This isn't the first time I've tried to come to you. And he says it to the Thessalonians. And he says it to this person and that person. Why? Because he was really wanting to work this obligation through. God had given it to him. God had placed it on him. And he wanted to be true to the will of God. But where does it come from? Where does such an obligation come from? You know, we haven't got a guess, have we? Because we have the word of God. And we can trace the obligation that was placed on Paul and from the very beginning right up until this very point that we are dealing with. You know, it stems from his commission. In Acts chapter 9, when uh, Paul or Saul then was accosted by God and Christ appeared uh, in front of him and asked him those questions, why do you persecute me? And then of course he, he says, I am Jesus whom you persecute. And you just Saul on the floor having received um, a bright light that blinded him and yet at the same time enlightened him. It's an amazing sort of uh, difference. It blinded his physical eyes but it opened up his spiritual eyes. You know, and of course we know that he was blind for three days. He went to a street, uh, a street and Ananias was given the job of going to see him. And this is what God said to him. Go, for he is a chosen vessel. Just like us. We've already sung that we are a chosen people. He was a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, before kings, and before the children of Israel. And that was his commission. You know, it was three days after he got saved. There was no sort of uh, nurturing class, no discipling class. There wasn't a breaking in period. As soon as Paul could stand up and the scales fell off his eyes, God says, this is what I wanted to do. This is, what I, this is my obligation that I am placing on you. You will be obligated to Gentiles 
You will be obligated to barbarians. You will be obligated to wise. You will be obligated to unwise. You will be obligated to the children of Israel. And you will be obligated to kings. I'm putting an obligation on you. Says God. You know what I said? No breaking in period. And when you study the life of Paul, you will notice that he never took an holiday or a break in any way, shape or form. Is this commission he acted on immediately. We can see that in verse 20 of Acts chapter 9. Immediately he went out and preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. You know, perhaps a lot of people today wouldn't be able to do that. But we know that Paul had a background in the Old Testament. You know, and we know that it was only the Old Testament that he ever used in his preaching. He wrote the New Testament, but he ministered from the Old Testament. You know, and um, once the light of Christ had opened up the Old Testament scriptures to him, he was enabled to understand the mechanics of the gospel, and it became the burning message in his soul commissioned to take the gospel to whoever would listen no Paul describes for us the obligation to this calling in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where he says for if I preach the gospel I have nothing to boast of for necessity is laid upon me an obligation in other words an obligation is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You know, what an amazing thing to say. You know, when we make so many excuses in our day, and yet this man says, woe is me. Why? Well, because there's an obligation on me. There's a divine obligation on me to preach the gospel. And woe is me if we do not, if I do not preach the gospel. You know, when I thought to myself as I wrote those words, or I sort of pasted, copied and pasted that lovely verse, couldn't we do with men like that today? A day when we do anything but preach the gospel. You know, as we remain, resume uh, in January, when we come back after the, the Christmas break, we will be dealing with verse 16 of Acts of, of Romans chapter 1. Verse 16, of course, we should know it by heart because it's on the notice board as we come in through the door. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I am not ashamed. You know, I've gone to board, I've gone, we are not ashamed. You know, because I'm speaking, uh, when I put it, uh, I put it on there, speaking as the church we are not ashamed of the gospel I'm so grateful that during 2015 this pulpit uh, was the place where the gospel was preached every time someone preached from it in one way or another the gospel of Christ has heralded out from this platform we are not ashamed I am not ashamed but I'm afraid that the gospel by and large has become something to be ashamed of today some of the accusations it's only words it's only words when we need action it puts people down when all we want is to be encouraged it's too negative when all we want is to feel the positive it's too gruesome 
when we want something to warm us. It offends when we want it to include. It separates when we want to integrate. It goes against the grain on every level. But Paul is not ashamed. You know, and if one prayer that is needed uh, in the church, I talked last week about prayer and what we should be praying for. And I think that one of the things that is necessary for us as a church and a, a Christian body of people in the Rhonda Valley to pray for is for men to be not ashamed of the gospel, for women to be not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that they speak it with boldness to the men and women that are outside. You know, and it's his tenacity to this obligation, his grip on this duty that God has given to him to speak for itself. You know, and it gives us some reasons for such an attitude to be a part of our uh, character as well. That we too would be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we would go about our daily business with this commission burning in our hearts and on the top of our minds and of our priority list. Why are we here? Why are we in this position? Well, we're here to do a bit of shopping. We're here to do some work. We're here to do this. We're here to do that. But I wonder how many of us think, well, perhaps here is an opportunity for us to preach the gospel, talk to someone about something, write something to someone. It's because that's how Paul lived his life. That's how Paul lived his life. You know, and this uh, obligation that he has, he works out so powerfully for us. You know what? It's because, I think, of his understanding of the character of God. He knew who God was. He had an understanding of the personality of God. No one. Sometimes we leave him out when we decide whether something's kosher or not. But Paul, everything revolved around the character of God. You know, and we'll see as we progress through this epistle that it's all down to the character of God, the righteous character of God, the loving character of God, the gracious character of God, the giving character of God. You see, it's all about the character of God. But we're going to just look at two uh, aspects of that complex character of God. And this is what he says. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He says that in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 9. The terror of the Lord or the fear of the Lord. The word is phobia. Phobia. You wonder David talked in his prayer about the fears that men have. All fears about this, that, and the other. You know what I would say that our society today is consumed with phobias. More than at any other time in my lifetime, we have phobias coming out of our ears. You know, and I'm convinced that it's because we've lost a view of God. You know, if even one person says, if you don't believe in something, you believe in anything. And if you haven't got an anchor, then you will drift. And if the word of God is not your anchor, then you will be afraid of everything. 
If you're not afraid of God, you'll be afraid of everything. And we can see that. You know, for, uh, for everything in life, there is a word which describes people's fear of it. Agrophobia. We all know what agrophobia is. Aquaphobia. We all know what aquaphobia is. Papyrophobia. Do anybody know what that is? Paper. The fear of paper. Let's get it. The fear of paper. <coughs> what about domatrophobia? The fear of houses. How can I be afraid of a house? How can I be afraid of paper? You know, there's a name for it. A name, you name it, and there's a phobia for it. That's how that's what we become. So superstitious. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I never thought that we would come to a place where we would be so superstitious that we would even be afraid of paper. But here is one phobia that we all need to develop. And that is what I call theophobia. The fear of God himself. You know, and until we suffer from theophobia, it, we will never know the remedy which Christ has provided for it. You know, when you look up these phobias, and I've looked up a few on the net today, well, I don't know whether to laugh or cry with some of them, you know, and uh, just take, for instance, um, this papyro, papyrophobia, the fear of paper. You will be surprised how seriously people take this Phobia of paper. No, they got. There's therapy groups, support groups. There's experts who will take you through your phobia of paper. They will. Um, they will give a gradual exposure to it, so that you can get used to being in the same room as a sheet of paper. Can you believe that? I can't believe uh, what people are actually uh, suffering from. You, you are pario, pariophobic. And then people tell us how stupid we are when we talk of the terror of the Lord. That's, that's, how, how stupid are you? You know, how archaic are you? How old-fashioned are you? And then they tell us they're afraid of paper. It blows my mind. You know, the, the worst thing that paper can do is give you a paper cut. They are painful, mine. I've got to be honest. They are They're one of the worst cuts that you can have, a, a paper cut. But it blows my mind when I hear of the fear of people. You know, and this is what we should be afraid of. Listen to this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness the wrath of God now there's something to be afraid of paper, yes it will give you a nasty little nick but the wrath of God you ask Jesus what the wrath of God is like and you'll begin to understand that yes there is a fear a fear of God you know what he says didn't he the terror of the Lord Knowing it, 
We persuade men. Jesus said, not to fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in, or in hell. How stupid is it therefore to deal with your fear of paper, which can only give you a little cut at the most, and not deal with the fear of the one to whom we must all give an account. Fear the one who alone decides our eternal future. I wonder, are we conversant with this side of God? The wrath side of God. The terror of God. The fear of God. Or are we those that would ignore the wrath of God? Play down the punishment of sin. Underestimate the pain of eternal separation. But you see, Paul tells us that it is a vital part of the gospel story. In fact, it is an essential part which has somehow been phased out in recent years because we want a more positive, inclusive, tolerable type of gospel which does nothing for anyone. The wrath of God. Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He knew the character of God, which included his wrath. But on the other hand, of course, Paul tells us that the love of Christ constrains him or compels him because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So we have the other side of the coin, which is not just the wrath of God, but the love of Christ. You know, of course, this is a most or the most vital aspect of God's character. Because without the love of God, there would be no gospel or good news to tell. You know, it's not good news that God's wrath has gone out against sin. That's not good news. But it's good news that at the same time, God's love has been seen in Christ. And His love has been nailed to the cross in order to avert that wrath that has been gone out against sin. You know, we've talked recently of the sole driving force of the gospel narrative. You know, God wasn't under any obligation. You know, he is, he is not obligated to you and me. I've said this so many times from this pulpit. Yes, He created us. And in a way, He's responsible for us. But you see, what we did in the garden was to cast off that responsibility. We don't want you to be obligated to us. We want to go our own way. And this world wants to go its own way. You know, the only time it ever talks about the obligation of God is when something goes wrong. Where was God in this? Where was God in that? Where was God in the IT earthquake? You know, where was God in Paris just a month ago? Where was God when that plane fell out of the sky? Where was where's the obligation of God to keep us safe? And yet every time we live our lives, we tell God to keep his obligation. Keep his responsibility. We are working out our own purposes and our own destiny. God is not obligated to us. He could justifiably have walked away from us. 
and thought, well, there's lots more planets in the universe that I could get in touch with. That I could plant another man and start again and see if he can do any better. But you see, he didn't. It wasn't his duty to love us. It wasn't his duty to save us. It wasn't his duty to come down and become a sacrifice for us. That isn't the driving force of the gospel narrative at all. It didn't. The gospel doesn't exist because he is emotionally attached to us. Or he has sympathy for us. It's uniquely due to his love. God, I don't know why, I don't know how, but he loves us. He loved the world. You know, I can remember preaching a sermon many years ago on God loving the world. You know, the first part of my sermon told me what the world was like. And I thought to myself, how could anybody love this? And yet the next part of my sermon says, for God so loved the world. It's incredible. The love of God is so incredible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The love that exists, it wasn't drawn out by anything. No, he didn't look down one day and think, Gladys is a nice girl. I love her. Or Beryl is a nice girl. Or David is a nice boy. No. No, the love of God exists. It exists in God. God is love. And boy, am I thankful for that. Because I tell you the truth, I have nothing in me with which I can draw God's love upon me. Nothing whatsoever. In fact, Paul tells us in chapter 7 of this letter, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, Nothing good dwells. What a terrible indictment on humanity. That in our flesh, nothing good dwells. You know, and there's the ball says, there he goes with his negatives again. Putting people down all the time. But isn't that the truth? That there is nothing good in man. And doesn't that make the love of God so essential and so liberating? That even though he knows us, he knows there's nothing good in us. That only God is good, he says. There's nothing good in you. But I have set my love on you. Mm, I am so grateful for the love of God. You know, and so it is the character of God. That is the terror and the love that drives Paul in his continual proclamation of the gospel. That drives his obligation to tell men and women. <coughs> no, but very quickly there is a personal interest in his willingness as well. He says this in 2 Corinthians 5. We read it uh, earlier on. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him you know, first of all for Paul 
Why was he so concerned to get this obligation sorted out? Well, here they are. The first thing uh, in this passage is the thrill of being involved in the work of the eternal God. Remember when we were in Murtha, there was a boy there and he was a, uh, he used to drive a truck for a, a building contractor. And a, a lady joined our church and she was um, a fruiterer. And she had a job delivering fruit around the doors and from a van. Remember they used to have the old scales on the back and, and Sid used to write on a bit of wood what my mother used to have. So break a tomato box and you know the bill wasn't you couldn't file it. You had to burn it. You could burn <laughs> pots twenty P or twenty pence or no one pound eight. Yeah, one pound eight, I say one pound eight pence. No, one and eight. Pots one and eight toms, nine pence, and then it was on this bit of cracked up wood. You always knew when Sid had been because there was a lump of wood on the table along with all the other stuff. But anyway, he was he says, Oh, I've always wanted to work for a Christian. I've always wanted to work for it. And she offered him a job. And he got rid of the job that he had in his builders, young. And he went to work for her. And within a fortnight they'd fallen out. And he, she sacked him. And he walked away. And here he was, he was unemployed because he had loved, always wanted to work for a Christian. I thank God that you and I are employed by God. We are in the employ of God. And we're involved in the work of God. Forget about being involved in the work of Christians. They know better bosses than anybody else. I can tell you. But God, being involved in the eternal issues of God, the eternal plan that, he, that has been since, since the beginning. You know, and having had the important ministry of reconciliation committed to him, it's going to be an immeasurable privilege for Paul to be a part of this thing that was set to grow and go into eternity and never come to an end. What what an amazing thing. And that's down to us as well. God has called us into his service to work for him on his behalf, to his bidding, knowing that what he has called us to do, he will bless, he will equip us to do. And he will bless us in the things that we do. And that blessing will follow us all the way into eternity. It's an immeasurable privilege. You know, of all the agencies that he could have used to get the job of bringing the gospel to humanity. He could have chosen angels. Surely that would have been a much better choice. When you think about it, they are much more kudos or mystique than ever we do. You know, surely to have an angelic visitation would bring the sinner to his knees. Can you imagine tonight, you know, when it, the, the house is full of people who don't know the Lord and an angel comes. They'd be on their knees immediately, crying out, what must I do to be saved? Surely it would have been better if he'd used angels to preach the gospel. Surely Christ himself he could have stayed here. You know, why did you have to go back to heaven? You could have stayed here. On every circumstance, you could have done a miracle. You know, people would have flocked to you. We've seen it. We've seen it in the Gospels. People flocked to him. 
because he was able to turn water into wine who wouldn't flock to him if you can feed 5,000 with a, a small small boy's lunch who wouldn't flock to him if he can raise the dead and heal people of leprosy surely Christ would have done a much better job than us to enhance the message of such importance surely this job was tailor made for the Holy Spirit because he can get around the globe unseen and he can filter in and he can do this and he can do that he would have done a, a much better job unhindered by travel or anything like that any man made hindrance he could have gone round the globe giving this life giving message but do you know he's chosen me and he's chosen you how much of a privilege is that he's chosen me and he's chosen you look at the word that Paul uses in verse 20 ambassadors ambassadors you know, the, you know you think about that advert with the fairer Russia when they're walking about because the ambassador have given a, is given a party and everyone's thrilled to be in the presence of the who's the ambassador? well he's the ambassador to the queen you know, it's as, almost as if the queen is here that's how important he is that's his standing when he speaks, he speaks for Britain. He speaks for the Prime Minister. He speaks for the government. But do you know when I speak, I speak for God. I stand in the place of God, says Paul. And when I implore you to be reconciled to God, it's as if He is. That's how important I am. That's how privileged the position that He has given me. We are ambassadors representing God Himself, standing in His place, articulating His heart's desire, speaking His words. And you know, the message, not only are we the messenger, but what a message we have. Have you ever thought about the message? God doesn't impute our trespasses to us, but laid them on Christ who knew no sin, but became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. What a message to bring. Because we're all guilty of sin. And I've said earlier that the wrath of God is revealed against sin. And therefore we have to be in fear of the wrath of God until we realize that that sin that we've committed hasn't been put down to our account, but it's been put down to Christ's account. It's good news. It's good news. Not only are we the ambassadors, are the, not only have we got the ministry of reconciliation, but we've got a fantastic message to bring. That God in Christ has reconciled us back to the Father. It's amazing. It's amazing. How can we be ashamed? How can we be ashamed of such a message? How can we ever not give it out with confidence and pride? The message of the gospel. Then lastly, why is Paul so meticulously committed to his task? And this is the last personal thing that we can look at tonight. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, For what is our hope, or our joy, or our crown of rejoicing? Now there's three things uh, that you and I would like to have. Hope, joy, and a crown of rejoicing. It's wonderful. But then he goes on to say, Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? What is Paul saying? Paul is saying this. My joy, my hope, 
my crown of righteousness or crown of rejoicing is you you people that I have had a part in bringing to Christ you know and when you look up into a congregation and you see people whom you have had a part in bringing to Christ or you have had a part in grounding in Christ you know and this is we talk about the um, uh, the privilege of a pastor well this is the privilege of a pastor to see people growing in Christ you know I told you before that one of the greatest thrills of my ministerial uh, career you can call it that was last July in there when an old row or a, a table full of people stood up and said what God meant to them through the ministry of Bible and Biscuits as we went through the story of Rome. <coughs> I sat there and looked at, this, I looked at Benjamin jumping up, well, didn't jump up, he spoke from his seat. Peter spoke from his seat. Rachel, Francis, Brian, Pauline, Janice spoke from their seats concerning the things that they learned. And I sat there and I thought, this is absolutely wonderful. This is an amazing feeling. Because that's a part of my ministry. And I was so thrilled. You want to look out and see people whom you have had a part in bringing to Christ and raising in Christ and grounding in Christ is the most amazing feeling. You know, it's up there with seeing your own children succeed in the lives that they have chosen. You know, I've been to three cup and gown ceremonies, two for Matthew and one for David, and you are the proudest person in the all. When he walked, when they walked onto the stage and took that diploma or whatever it was, you burst with pride. That's my son out there. He's done this for himself. You know, but it's the same. It's the same. The joy, the satisfaction are just some of the emotions you go through. You know, just imagine seeing them when you're in the company of the risen, ascended Lord of glory. Because that's what Paul is saying. Is it not even you in the presence? And that word there is the parousia. This is the this is talks about the second coming of Christ. You want know, he's standing by me. And he's saying, Look at that, look at those people there. They're the ones that you helped to bring to Christ. You were the ones that you helped to ground in the faith. You were the ones that you taught. The basics of, of, of the gospel. You were the one that led them in prayer. And led them to do this. Can you imagine how I'm going to feel. When Christ is pointing out all these different people to me. You want the same with you. The same with, with all of us. We've all been called to this ministry. We've all been given this obligation. But you see the privilege. The joy. The satisfaction and the crown of rejoicing that's going to come when you stand by Jesus and he's going to say, these are the ones that you brought, that you grounded, that you helped to build and you helped to grow. Just imagine seeing those when you're with him. When he points them out and he says, you've shared in my work in this. Our hope our joy, our crown of joy. No wonder he was obligated 
You know, this was a high that he was never going to come down from. No, not even in eternity. I wonder how many of us tonight are defined by this obligation that Paul speaks of you. Do we feel the obligation? Do we know the character of God? Is the thrill of serving Jesus a reality in our lives? Are we expecting the joy of seeing those we spoke to, seeing those we witnessed to, seeing those we invited? Is that going to be our eternal experience? Or are we ashamed of the gospel? Are we apologetic, perhaps even disinterested, <coughs> or not too bothered, or even acquiescent in it all? Now that's the challenge to us as individuals. It's the challenge to us as a church. You and I would hope that Paul's testimony tonight will stir us all up to be God's voice in this darkest of generations. Now 2016 lay bare open for us to use the opportunities that God gives to us in order that on that day we won't be ashamed of His coming because we were ashamed of His gospel. But we will be not ashamed of His gospel and we will hope and rejoice in His coming.